Please turn your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 5. We're in verses 21 through 26 today. And last week in verses 17 through 20, Jesus set the stage uh, from what he was about to, or for what he was about to teach for most of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And we might say especially for the rest of chapter 5. What Jesus was teaching didn't sound the same as the teaching of the rabbis in that time. Mainly, uh, mainly because what the rabbis were teaching was not biblical. That would make sense, right? And Jesus had not shown up on the scene, or he, yeah, he had not shown up on the scene and obliterated the law of Israel. Instead, Jesus was fulfilling it. They felt like this Jesus guy came out and was just totally tearing everything apart. But that's not what he was doing. He was fulfilling the law. And he himself was the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament had pointed to. And so Jesus is teaching the actual truth, the true interpretation of the word of God. And what the people had been hearing for quite some time was only the extra-biblical traditions, extra rules, external requirements, and not the heart or the spirit of the law. So in verse 20, where Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus says that, he's not telling the people that the scribes and Pharisees were so super righteous and everyone would have to be even better than them. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, the righteousness they were teaching, was not righteousness. It fell short. What was good enough for them was not in accord with God's word. It was not in accord with the righteousness of God. Now, think back to the very beginning of this sermon. It wasn't that long ago at all, right? Do you remember the first thing I said to you? Or maybe one of the first things. Please turn in your Bibles. That's right. Why is that so important? If I started teaching you something that was contradicting God's word, what could you do? If I started preaching that that Jesus said, do your best and try hard, and I'm sure you'll be good enough, and, and everybody goes to heaven anyway, so don't worry about it. What could you do? Well, you could read your Bibles, right? You could read your Bibles, of course. And we take that for granted sometimes, don't we? We have such amazing, great access to the Word of God. How many of you have more than one copy of the Bible? Yeah, all of you probably have more than one copy of the Bible. How many of you have a phone with the internet on it? You have a copy of the Bible, even with that, right? Reformers in the 1500s and even earlier, like uh, William Tyndale or Martin Luther, Some of those guys risked or even lost their lives for the desire and for the effort to make sure that the Bible would be translated into the languages of the people, languages they could read, that they could understand. Even the original New Testament, when the when the apostles and and those men were writing the New Testament in Greek, they weren't writing it in classical Greek for only the elite. They They were writing it in what's called Koine Greek, the language of the people on the street. They wanted everybody to be able to read it for themselves. In the Catholic Church back in the time of the Reformation, they were doing everything in Latin. And the people who were attending those masses, they wouldn't have known any different if what they were hearing was in the Bible or if it wasn't. 
And the same sort of thing was happening in Judea and in the surrounding regions during Jesus' time. A very similar thing. Uh, to start with, they didn't have the printing press, right? They weren't pumping out millions of copies of a Bible. They didn't have that technology. So every copy had to be handwritten, which made those copies hard to come by and super expensive. They couldn't go to the bookstore and pick up whatever version of it they wanted, whatever study Bible, whatever reference Bible, whatever kind of cover. You get the idea. Uh, hard, hardly any of them had access even to a single copy. And then the language. The language of the people, what was being spoken on the street at the time, was Aramaic. And there were some similarities between Aramaic and, and Hebrew, but they aren't the same language. And when the religious leaders were reading the scriptures in their gatherings, they would read the original Hebrew of the Old Testament and then give their own interpretations of the meaning, the teachings. So guess which part the people understood? Just what the people were saying, what they were teaching The result was much the same uh, to what things were prior to the Reformation. There were religious leaders who were teaching unbiblical doctrines and teachings, and the people didn't really have any way of seeing that in their own eyes, or with their own eyes. And then Jesus comes, the greatest reformer of all time. And so now, for the rest of chapter 5, we're going to see six versions of this, you have heard that it was said, and then... But I tell you, you have heard, meaning this is what they're teaching you. But I say, meaning this is what God's word truly is. And that's very important for us to understand. Uh, Jesus in these verses is not adding extra requirements. He is not expanding the word of God. It would be wrong to say then that in the Old Testament, they just had to, let's say, not murder people. That was the Old Testament law. But in the New Testament, well, now Jesus has come, and now you can't even get angry anymore. That would be a false statement. That's not it at all. What Jesus is saying in these teachings is simply this. These have been the will and the law of God all along. These people have just never heard it. So today's passage, as I've just revealed, speaks of anger. Anger. What an amazing week to see what the Bible says about anger. That worked out pretty nicely, didn't it? But let's jump into verse 21. Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. The sixth commandment, right? Thou shalt not kill. In Exodus 20, verse 13, as part of God's first written revelation to man, it says, the ESC translated it, you shall not murder. Now in Exodus 21, the next chapter, in verse 12, it says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Uh, Before giving other provisions, lesser punishments for accidental deaths and things like that. As far back as Genesis 9 In verse 6, after Noah and his family got off the ark, God said, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. I don't think there would be any argument that murder is wrong. We're going to have a lot of debate about that today. That that murder should be punished as well. Uh, The problem with this teaching from the scribes and the Pharisees is that this was the extent of their teaching. This is as far as they went. 
don't murder anyone, or else you'll have to go to the court and be punished. Period. First of all, what about God? Where's God? Did they just make their own courts? The, the courts, the Pharisees and Sadducees sit on the, uh, the, those courts and they can judge in city by city by city. They're there. They actually had two San, uh, Sanhedrins. There was the larger, which we read about the most when we think about Jesus and his trial in Jerusalem, but there were smaller ones in the cities all around the area. And those smaller ones could uh, give the verdict of a capital punishment for murder. Is that the end, though? Think about this. The people who are the religious leaders are also those on those courts. And in a sense here, did they make themselves the end of the fear of these people? If you do this, you'll have to stand before us. Ooh, right? And then second, what about the heart? What about the heart? Psalm 51.6 says, Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being. For Samuel 16.7, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In Proverbs 6, uh, 16 through 19, these verses start out with, uh, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And then in verses 17 and 18, it says, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans. That's all Old Testament, by the way, right? And then back in Matthew fifteen nineteen, Jesus teaches this, for out of the heart, out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. It is what comes out from the heart, the inner man, that results in our actions. We do what we do because we want what we want. Sin starts in the heart. So we hear this law being taught, don't murder anyone. And if we aren't thinking beyond that exact outward action kind of law. We take note, right? We, we think back through our lives, kind of watch our lives flashing before our eyes, and, and I, you know, I don't ever recall killing anybody for some selfish reason. I, I've never murdered anybody, so I'm, I'm good. How about you? You good too? Great. We're awesome. And while we're at it, let's think of how much better we are than other people, those murderers. How, how dare they? We're so great. And we might say, well, when do we do that? When do we actually have that kind of an attitude? Well, one example would be like this. When, when we ask somebody, we might ask them, do you think that you're going to go to heaven when you die? Some people like to share the gospel in a sense with asking that question first. And they might say, and maybe we've said this in the past, well, I've never killed anyone or anything, so I would think so. Well, there you go. Right? And some people get it wrong and they think, well, murderers, murderers go to hell, I would think, but not people like me. Well, this is a self-defined righteousness. And our righteousness must exceed the self-defined righteousness of even the scribes and the Pharisees. And then Jesus continues, verse 22. Remember verse 21 was, you have heard that it was said, And now verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Let me answer this question first right away. We might be thinking, now, who is my brother? Who is my brother? Whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So who's my brother? And hopefully as you hear those words being spoken out loud, it sounds a lot like, and who is my neighbor? If I'm asking who my neighbor is or who my brother is when God tells us to love people or to not be angry with them, we're we're missing the point, aren't we? And we're trying to define law. That's a way to be legalistic. Interpreting the scripture to inform ourselves of just how far we can go with our carnal thinking before we feel it crosses whatever line we can't cross. So to answer the question, your brother, your brother, or your sister, is anyone. Uh, When Jesus is teaching this, the church didn't exist yet. They were not calling each other brothers and sisters in Christ. Not even everyone hearing this sermon on the mount was a believer. And as they looked around, they were to see everyone and anyone sitting around there as a potential brother. As a brother. The lawyer asked in Luke 10, who is my neighbor in an effort to justify himself? That's what it says in that passage. And that's when Jesus told the parable of the good Samaritan who helped a Jew. Those two people groups despised each other. If that Samaritan had gone home and said, hey, I just helped a Jew today, his family wouldn't have said, great job, high five. They would have said, what were you doing? Why would you help them? So who is my brother? (laughs) Who is my sister? Anybody. Everyone. Public figures? Politicians? My in-laws? Are they either anybody or everybody? Well then, yes. Are they human beings who need a savior? Then yes. Christians, we don't murder people to fulfill our selfish desires or our out-of-control emotions. No, we don't do that. We offer them life in Jesus Christ. Christians, we are salt and light in the world, not poison. That's not who God's called us to be. That's not our mission. That is not our calling. Now, you might have noticed in verse 22, there's three sayings. One was, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The second, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. The third is, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Three sins, three judgments. Did you see that? And it's interesting that there's a kind of escalation in each statement, both in the sin and in the judgment. And it's being used as a figure of speech, okay? Uh, on the side of the judgments, you have the phrase liable to judgment, which was the same as the, Fer- the Pharisees had said, referring to those regional courts uh, for murder itself. So in that phrase, Jesus is simply equating anger with uh, the heart of murder. Anger, murder, same thing. That's what Jesus is doing with that statement. And then from those regional courts, we move on to the council. I already talked to you about that. There were regional courts in the cities, and then there was the big court in Jerusalem. This was their supreme court, the Sanhedrin, the Council of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Jerusalem. 
you had to be in some serious trouble if you were going to stand before those guys. Some serious trouble. But they weren't like going before God. The third form of judgment is written here as the hell of fire. In the Greek, the word used is Gehenna, which is taken from the Hebrew name of that location, the Valley of Hinnom. And this valley, in the history of Israel, in the history of Judah, had been used by King Ahaz. He was the king of Judah, and he gave his own son. So the prince, the king of Judah in Jerusalem, gave his own son, the prince, as a burnt sacrifice to the Midianite false god, Molech. Think about that for a second. And then later, King Josiah, not wanting this valley to be used for anything else after all that, he made it a dump for the city. It was forever unclean. So they turned it into a dump. And they would throw all of their waste into the valley and they would burn it there. Hence the fires of the valley of Hinnom or the fires of Gehenna, which became a known figure of speech for the fires of eternal hell. And Jesus used that uh, often when he taught about hell. So that's quite a jump in severity, isn't it? Jesus wasn't messing around here. And he brought up a point uh, the rabbis of that day had seemingly missed. The courts were nothing to fear compared to the eternal righteous judgment of God. And it's important to remember as well, the building up of intensity here was for effect. It's not like some sins are just smaller and just worthy of human courts and other sins are bigger and those ones are worthy of hell. No, all of these sins are worthy of eternal judgment before our holy and just God. Now the other crescendo, if you will, in this verse is, is on the side of the anger and these angry actions. So we had the judgments, and now we're talking about the anger and the angry actions. Jesus starts with the attitude of anger, the attitude of anger in the heart. Uh, since this anger is an anger which deserves judgment, we know that it's not the same kind of anger that Jesus had when he cleansed the temple in John 2, or the same kind of anger referred to in Ephesians 4.26, where the apostle Paul wrote, Be angry and do not sin. This is an anger that compels us to fight for the person. The, the anger of Jesus, the anger of Ephesians 4, that anger compels us to fight for the person on their behalf, to speak the truth in love for their benefit, for their repentance. This anger produces in us the desire and the gumption to speak to people and to work for their benefit and for God's glory. That's a different thing. The anger in Matthew 5 is not righteous anger. It's selfish anger. Where we would be against someone, not for them. An anger where someone has done something that irritates us, it ticks us off, it hurts us, and we take those emotions and we nurture them. We hold a grudge. We grow bitter. We refuse to forgive. That kind of anger. We don't hope for their repentance. We long for their destruction. This is the anger that produces hatred for a person. And this is murderous. Even while it resides, we think, in the safety and the confines of our heart. It's murderous. 
The next sin mentioned is insults. Whoever insults his brother. And the word in the Greek here is the word raka. And there really isn't an English word for it. (laughs) There isn't one. Uh, Some English translations just leave it as raka because there isn't much they can do about it. Other than that, uh, the folks that translated the ESV chose to use the word insults. But this word, raka, would have been an actual word, a name used for the, for the occasion of insulting someone. So, like, if we called somebody a dweeb today, how would you have translated dweeb? Right? And dweeb is probably a soft version. I would say that's a very soft version compared to what raka meant. Okay? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if they would know how to translate that from the English to something else 2,000 years from now. But this insult is like calling someone a fool, an idiot, maybe even a moron. This is name-calling, flinging, hurling insults. And it's a step forward from anger. So calling people idiots and morons and fools isn't a step back. It's a step forward in anger. Because that anger in the heart, which is already murderous, is now starting to result in outward actions to attack people. And then we go from anger to hurling insults to condemnation. The final phrase Jesus used was, whoever says, you fool. And the word in the Greek for fool is the actual word that got turned into moron in the English language. How about that? The Greek word is moros. But the idea here is that it's, it's more than name-calling. The word in the Greek means stupid, dull, or more importantly, even godless. Godless. This person is without God. And what is a person without God? Well, they're in trouble, right? In saying, you fool or you moron, in this way, Jesus is describing the person who uses their words to directly condemn another person to tell them they are good for nothing they are worthless a lost cause in our words today perhaps the most accurate updated version is when someone uses the vulgar and i'm going to say this in the true definition of the word okay but they might say you god damned and then fill in the blanks from there and they mean it they're not just throwing it out of their lips. They mean it. And notice, the person who has just heard this verbal assault, who's on the other end of it, well, they're not physically dead. They have no physical scars. But they just died inside, didn't they? And the one who spoke these words of hate and anger before God is guilty of murder. And they have been ever since they started harboring their anger toward the person and therefore liable to the hell of fire. Now, because the spirit of the law is not just what we are not to do, God didn't just tell us, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, also said, do these things. It's not just negative, but also positive. Jesus continues to teach the law by teaching us what to do. Verse 23. So if you're offering your gift... At the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
Uh, we don't just abstain from murder and anger, but we also make things right. We seek to make things right. Uh, on the surface here, we see the worship of God in, in giving a sin offering. Uh, then the Jews would bring their spotless lamb to the altar, but the priest had to finish the job. They didn't do all of the, the killing of the lamb and the sprinkling of the blood. The priest did that. So what they would do is they'd bring the animal, and in the presence of the priest, they would put their hand on the animal. And in doing so, they were symbolizing that the animal was identifying with their sin. Off me on you, okay? The animal now is the one bearing symbolically the sin of that person. They would serve as their substitutionary sacrifice. That's what the purpose of that was. And so Christ is saying, even if you've brought the animal to the altar, you're in the temple there, you've brought the animal into the altar, your hand is on it, the priest is about to take it, and you know there's something wrong between you and someone else. Leave the altar. Well, I mean, that messes with my schedule today. Leave the altar. But the priest is already here. He's got the animal. There's a line. Leave the altar. Stop what you're doing. Get right with that person first. And then come worship. Then do this act of forgiveness. Well, if I just keep doing all these right things and maybe things will settle out over time, leave your gift at the altar and go and make things right. Now listen to what God had said to Israel through the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 1. I'm going to read two verses, 11 and then 13 through 17. God says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. God's not bloodthirsty. The people were in sin and there needed to be justice. He says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. These new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Religious obeisance, Without heart change. I cannot endure it, God says. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They, they have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause, help those who can't help themselves. In Jeremiah chapter 7 verses 9 and 10, it says, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name? And say we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? This is tough in our day. The God of, the God of our culture isn't some fake God that has wooden or golden statues made after them. The chief end of man in this culture today increasingly is to be pleasing to man. Humanism. 
And Israel was blind to the fact that they have put these different false religions together. And church, we need to be careful that we're not blind to it too. And, and we might say it even harder today. If, we, if there was a golden statue, it seemed like it'd be a lot easier, wouldn't it? But Jesus is teaching us something with, with these examples. He's teaching us that you should not ask for forgiveness without pursuing repentance. So a side, a side application here in this teaching. We shouldn't be asking for forgiveness without pursuing repentance. Those things go hand in hand. You can't do one without the other. And because he has commanded us to love our neighbors ourselves, because we've been told, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, Romans twelve eighteen. If I'm not doing that, if I know someone is at odds with me, and the way Jesus worded this, in this instance, it might have even been me who was at fault. But if I need to make something right with someone, if I need to ask for forgiveness, if I need to be reconciled to another person, if I need to repent and stop doing this, and I know that, I'd better do that before I come to the Lord and worship. Certainly before I would ask the Lord for forgiveness. God, I'm going to keep doing this, and I'm going to keep wronging these people, but would you forgive me for it? No. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart the Lord would not have listened. And by the way, that psalm finishes up by saying, here's some good news, but truly God has listened. God has listened. He has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Church, we have our greatest joy when we have it in him. In him. Every other joy that the world might have to offer is puny, worthless compared to the joy that we can have in Christ And we cannot worship, we cannot glorify, we cannot enjoy God in truth when we are harboring sin in our hearts and are refusing to seek peace with others. So sometimes we might say, well, church really wasn't that exciting to me today. Well, maybe there's a reason. Maybe there's something that you haven't wanted to deal with because you might get uncomfortable. And we won't obey Christ, therefore he is not that much of a delight to us. That's a serious thing. So to choose to, 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 to choose to continue to be angry and bitter to, is to choose to disobey God. To choose to hurt another person, it's to choose to forfeit our joy and peace that we can have in Christ. So free yourself from that. If you're there today, free yourself from that. Seek the freedom of the person or the other people that are involved with you in this. They need freed from this too. And you can't ensure that they'll respond well. We can't do that, right? But you can offer this to them. And receive it yourself to be able to pursue Christ with a pure heart and a clear conscience. God grant that. And know this, if you have sought... Some of you might be in a boat like this where you've sought to make things right with others and they've just simply refused. They won't listen. They won't pay attention. They won't change. Or they paid lip service but continue in their sin. Know that your effort and your willingness to try to make it right with them, it has freed you. It has freed you. God is not holding you accountable for the actions of others or for their lack of right response. Now, moving forward, Jesus continues with this illustration starting in verse 25. Jesus said, come to terms quickly. That's the word. Quickly. 
with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. That key word was quickly. We're to make things right with people before we would worship the Lord and before we would ask him for forgiveness. And we are to make things right with people, therefore, quickly. In these debtors' cases, once the judge got involved in those cases back then, the parties were no longer allowed to settle outside of court. Once you get in, you're in. You're in the system, and it's not over till the judge says it's over. So once it got to the courts, the courts had to follow their procedures. And the procedure was, for a debtor, you're in jail until every last penny is paid. So don't wait until it gets that far. When you have something between you and another person, don't wait until it's too late. Go make it right. Be timely about this. Don't let the sun go down in your wrath or theirs. Come to terms quickly. And then just a few more things before we're done. How should we talk to people? We've talked a lot about what not to do. How should we talk to people? Uh, Even when they're wrong. Even when they're doing wrong. How should we talk about leaders who we think are doing wrong that we disagree with? Well, here's two passages. Ephesians 4, 29-32. This is a helpful passage. This says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. There isn't a situation where that doesn't apply. <laughs> Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And then James, chapter 3. I'll read to you verses 5 through 12. James writes this, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. Perhaps today they would have used the word viral. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed. And has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth uh, from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. I don't think it's hard to convince you of this. It's pretty common or popular right now to have something nasty to say to people, about people, that you disagree with. It's kind of the way things are right now. And Christians, that is not our calling. In fact, when we engage in that kind of stuff, we're not 
we're not only not fulfilling our calling, but we are also going against the cause that God has called us to. If we are not fighting with him, we are fighting against. We have been called to represent Christ, to make disciples, not to harbor anger and hurl insults, not even at public figures. If you've gotten caught up into the mix of that, please repent, turn. That is a blazing fire of destruction. Get out of there while you can. And if you get caught up in that chaos in a way, uh, you're building your own trap. Stealing away your own joy. And offending the very people you've been called to reach. Get out. Get out. We have been commanded to pray for people, including our governmental leaders. Pray for their repentance. Pray for change in policies that disobey the Lord and hurt people. Speak to them in truth for their benefit. It is okay to disagree. It's okay to disagree and to talk about why. But I've never mocked someone into believing in Jesus. Have you? Never. Fig trees don't produce olives. And if I'm harboring anger toward them in my heart, will God hear my prayers for their repentance? if I'm even praying for them at all. Now, to go back to the beginning of this message, if all we had to do was, you know, just not be a murderer, if that's the end of the story, just don't be a murderer and you're good, I think we'd be in pretty good shape. I've never killed anyone. Anybody here? Okay, high fives all around. No murderers here. Great. But that isn't the extent of God's expectation. (laughs) What was the righteousness that's greater than the righteousness prescribed by the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus has just taught? Well, we can't even harbor anger. Not even anger. We're not to be hurling insults. Not condemning people verbally. These things are also wrong and deserving of punishment. We are supposed to be at peace with everyone that we can be in peace with, being reconciled with everybody that we can as much as as possible, not harboring any bitterness in our hearts, not stewing in anger toward other people. So after looking at Jesus' command here, and not just Jesus' command, but the command of the law all along, after learning of the expectations of our holy, righteous, just God, well, the hands are going to start dropping, right? We're not, in, we're not in pretty good shape anymore, are we? And that's the point. <laughs> that is the point. That's what we're supposed to learn here. We should definitely strive for righteousness. We should strive for repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, a clear conscience, no bitterness, good relations for everyone. Yes, sign me up for that. I want that. But we haven't kept all these commands. No one has. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this realization of our failure and the requirement of justice and the reality of the fires of hell that Jesus mentions here, all of this put together should put in our hearts a cry for rescue. Rescue. Jesus is teaching us in these verses that we desperately need saving. And he came to do 
just that. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus Christ lived a perfect and sinless life. He never harbored selfish, sinful anger in his heart towards anyone. He fulfilled the law and is the fulfillment of everything the law pointed toward. He is our substitutionary, sacrificial lamb. And when he died on the cross, all our sin was placed on him. And by faith, by the grace of God, all his righteousness has been placed on us. On those who believe in him. And so even though none of us can achieve the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes of Pharisees, we can't do that but it has been freely given to us through Christ. We're free, not guilty. And I'd say if you're, if you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in him, it is offered to you today. This is offered to you today. Be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your kind grace that you give to us. It can be so easy to just look at what's going on all around us and even excuse our own sin by seeing the sin of others. Thinking that the sin of others rises up within us, these angers and hostilities, and call it righteous. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom in this. Help us to see these things. Lord, that we would be aware and submitted to your will to be uh, your children, your servants, your kingdom. That our goal and our desire for every single person would be their salvation would be their benefit, their joy in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you that though we all have already fallen short of that, that Jesus Christ came to pay the debt. We thank you for his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. We thank you for the eternal salvation that we have in him, that our sin will not be held against us, that we Our sin has already been judged that we have eternal life. Because you have showered this grace on us, we will never taste or feel or sense this hell of fire. God, thank you for your amazing grace. And may we, Lord, be overwhelmed by this in such a way that we would desire to go out and make things right with people that we would want to see them as souls who desperately need a Savior, that we would be encouraged to love them, to show kindness to them. Lord, that our first love, where it needs to be, that it be restored. That we would love people to your glory, for your goodness. And God, I pray that you would work in our nation right now. I pray that you would work amongst your people right now. And that we would rest in your sovereign hand and follow your word, the spirit of the law. 
We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.